From Bristol, UK, I'm Pommy Harmer. I'm Melissa Shamam, and this is The Quarantini. We've been bringing you this podcast every week since April to keep your spirits up. Every episode will bring you a mix of indigenous responses to the virus, creative ideas for the future, an in-depth interview, and maybe a dash of the unexpected. Includes music like this song, Hot Flu, by the Oldborn Collectives. And thank you very much to Seb Gutierrez for just uh, allowing to use that theme. Hello and welcome back. This is episode 26 and we have our usual roundup. We also have an interview and this week I've talked to someone very special from Bristol. She's called Aisha Thomas and I'll tell you more about her in just a minute. And we're really, really lucky this week because we have music from the wonderful New Zealand singer-songwriter Aldous Harding. She's been in Bristol recording her latest album and she's a very lovely woman. You've been lucky enough to meet her, right? I did meet her. She stayed in my house for a while. Yeah, we'll talk about that hopefully a bit more in the coming weeks. Okay, so it's time for our interview. Yes, let's start with the interview. This week I talk to a special woman. She's an educator, the assistant principal in an inner city secondary school. Her name is Aisha Thomas. She's also the founder and director of a company called Representation Matters. And she's trying to deal with uh, supporting people feeling ostracized in the city, especially because of issues around racism. As you know, Pommy, the month of October in the UK is Black History Month. And um, I think you've been working a lot about that at Ujima. I've been writing a lot about it as well. But we both believe that, you know, black issues don't stop after the end of October. Aisha was invited for two key events at the Old Vic. Obviously, that was before they had to close down. And she gave there as well a powerful TED talk exactly a year ago that you can watch on YouTube that I highly recommend. So talking to her, I started by asking her how COVID-19 has affected her work. You know, as an educator, schools are absolutely key, uh, key workers, key moment, key place in our cities for children. And especially as a black teacher working on those issues on a very, in a very diverse area, she's been quite affected. And then she explained how the disease um, and issues about and around racism are actually very linked. Then she'll discuss how uh, the, this very, very special year unfolded for her and all these issues of um, education and representation. From an education perspective, COVID completely knocked us for six. Nobody expected it, as everyone keeps saying, it's unprecedented. So we didn't expect that to come. But I think what COVID did initially, and I think it hit me both as an educator and also personally, was that racism came to the forefront in a way that it hadn't for a very long time and certainly not in a very obvious and overt way. But when COVID came about and there was so much more information, one of the key barriers for us was this misconception that if you were black or if you're a person of color, you were more um, likely to be affected by COVID. 
Well, obviously, when you work in a school that's 85% Black minority ethnic by definition, and you are one of very few Black members of staff within the school, that burden of understanding what that means falls upon your shoulders in a very heavy way. And even though we were on lockdown, many of our children were still attending school due to safeguarding concerns. And many of those children were Black. And having to listen to those children talk about the way in which they were segregated because of their skin colour, the way they were shouted at in the street, the way people would move towards them in the supermarket, the way people would cross over because they just didn't want to be near them because of their skin colour. And having to challenge discussions and talk to people about the fact that, yes, Black people are at risk, but let's break down why. Let's understand that, yes, because they do many of the jobs on the front line, be it carers, cleaners, you know, transport, all the things that puts them at risk not because there's a genetic reason that means because you're black, you're more likely to have COVID and therefore a risk. And for those young children, it was a really hard concept to understand. And then they felt this level of guilt because young people were put under a lot of pressure. And then for some of them who then lived in intergenerational households, they then felt a pressure of the risk they may well be putting on their other family members. And so having to kind of almost deconstruct this concept of COVID, explain what the data meant, whilst actually trying to help keep those children safe, was such a very delicate and complex situation to be in. And as a leader who was going into school, as one of the only Black people in the building, I also had to think about how people would react to me as a Black person, thinking that because I was Black, I was more likely to be at risk. And it took a long time, I think, for not just the education system, but professions in general to think about those risk assessments. Mm -hmm. What measures do we need to put in for Black people? Do we need to ask additional questions? Do we need to put in measures? And I think there are lots of children who are worried also about their parents who are going to work without PPE. And did that mean that they were more at risk? So I think that COVID period was really difficult. And I too suffered COVID-related racism. You know, I went to the supermarket and I had people shouting at me. I, ha I was in a queue to go into a supermarket and somebody literally jumped in the square in front of me, didn't want to be next to me purely because of the colour of my skin, because black people are more at risk. And yet at that point, she'd gone into someone else's two metre box. So at this point, you've got two people mixing and that probably posed much more of a risk. And yet people were questioning me. I think that in itself put a certain level of exposure to real um, microaggressions and also unconscious bias, which was becoming quite conscious in behaviour. Yes, of course. That was the beginning of, I guess, of a very difficult journey. And then throughout that process, we then began to see the issues around Black Lives Matter. And obviously, when several people in America passed away and George Floyd, I guess, the most public of death, that really you know, shook everybody to their core. And I would have children coming into school crying and saying, Miss, it's horrible being Black right now. And I can honestly say, I've never felt so Black in my life. So what it must feel like for a young person who perhaps in their life have only heard about racism, been taught about racism, but may never have had that experience, particularly when you go to a school which is predominantly of people of colour, these aren't experiences that they usually have. And when you actually have to watch it on the news, when you have to hear it on the radio, when you have these constant images telling you that your blackness means that you're at risk, not just on your day to day, but your life can be at risk for no other reason than the pigmentation. That's a hard conversation to have with children. And kids would come in to me during the COVID period and say, Miss, I don't feel good today, but I know you understand. And it was just almost like a look and a glance. And we would both understand what that meant. And then we got on to the march and Colston. So it's almost like the cake layers were just being built and built and built and built. 
And that was a really tough time because there was the conversation and dialogue about, Miss, was this right? Should Colton have come down in the way it did? But at the same time, when a man has done these things, we can't possibly support that. Miss, why was the statue up? You know, and then really wanting to have conversations about why it was so significant. Why do we need activism? Why do people break the law in order to get their point across? And watching them dissect it and break down in their minds as to what all of these elements meant was really interesting. And so I wrote an open letter to the staff at the school, really expressing what it felt to be a black female in 2020 and an educator and a mother. And I also wrote to the students and said to them, you know, let's really break this down a little bit and actually understand what race means. Let's understand why Colston was significant and let's understand what it means to be an activist. And, you know, it was about having honest conversations that, you know, we are not supporting criminal activity. We're not supporting that that's the way you need to do things. But it was trying to get children to understand why these things may happen and why those steps may be taken. And even have an interest in discourse where children would say things like, but miss, why is it that black people are getting blamed for taking Colston down? But when you watch the footage, there were no black people actually touching the statue. And I asked the question, I said, well, why is that? Because miss, I don't think black people would ever do it because we would be too scared of the repercussions. So you've got children who know this and feel this. And yet they could see in the paper the propaganda that was saying to them, they're the reason this is what's happening. And I guess personally, it was difficult because I was sending my kids to school in order to work. And my son got stopped during the COVID period of time by the police. And he was like, don't worry, mummy, I followed your rules. I made sure that my blazer was showing and I took my coat down and I said, can I show you my uniform and explain why I was out of my house? And, you know, you sit back and I go, wow. I'm actually having a conversation with my 12-year-old about how to speak to the police to make sure that the situation goes as smoothly as possible. He's 12. He's insane, yeah, he's so young. And I'm talking to my white friends and I'm saying, have you ever had this conversation with your kids? And they're like, no. So it's been a tough time. And I guess I feel like I'm beginning to navigate my way through it. I believe that I'm beginning to find sources of solace and I'm beginning to use my platform in a positive way to kind of challenge the system and kind of debunk some myths and actually say, you know, there are things that we need to do and steps that we need to take. And that's kind of helping with my healing. But I have to be honest, this has been a very traumatic period of time and I honestly haven't felt so black in my life. Well, yeah. Do you think people realise how hard it is? Because I feel like they're still around that there's a lot of discourse about how things have improved, which obviously they have. You know, there was a time where people were not free at all, couldn't vote in some countries, so we're not that bad. And But there's also in Britain, and why not just and even in Bristol, a lot of discourse as like, well, we all suffer, we all have difficulties, we, my dad were poor as well, et cetera, et cetera, trying to make the problem not a racial problem, but more of an inequality problem. And of course, we know it's very interlinked. Absolutely. I mean, a colleague of mine read A Call as Natives, and she said to me, I really struggled to read that. I had to put it down several times. And I said to her, pause for one moment and just think, what must it have been like for someone to live it? Because the difference between you putting down a book or no longer wanting to have a conversation or feeling like you're over this, I don't get ever get to be over my blackness. I don't ever get to take off my skin. I don't ever get to decide that I don't want to have a conversation because the reality is I am black all of the time. And the microaggressions and the unconscious bias doesn't go away. What people misunderstand is that the pain and trauma is still there. 
yes, you might not be at fault. You might not even deem yourself to be racist. You might not even be contributing to the atrocities that black and, you know, black and brown people are facing. But when you turn a blind eye and you say, Do you know, I've had enough, that doesn't stop the pain. Doesn't stop those people still hurting. Doesn't still stop them feeling that they are lesser than or that they're insubordinate because the current status quo continues to reinforce the same rhetoric and we perpetuate the same problems. It's ludicrous to expect us to not challenge the fact that Black people are disproportionately affected in particular places, in particular industries, in particular concepts. And we just want you to see it, note it, and allow that challenge to, to take place. We don't want handouts. We don't want exception. We're not asking for special treatment. We just want true equity. We truly want the opportunity to have those barriers removed so that we too can feel like we are human people who deserve our existence. But what's also important, not just about the curriculum, is about teaching a child about empowerment, teaching a child about self, teaching a child about the beauty of who they are, regardless of their skin colour. And one of the projects I did with One Bristol Curriculum was literally looking at the concept of what's in a name. And that literally came from a conversation with my neighbor. And he talked about his name being Whisper and that in Zimbabwe, you name your children after what you want them to become. And he was called Whispering purely because his granddad wanted a quiet child for his mother, which is really beautiful as a story. But what it got me to really think about is actually how much do we know about self? How much do we spend time getting to know who we are and where we come from? And I did a whole exercise with our students where we got them to look at well, what does your name mean? It didn't matter whether you were black or white, whether you were Asian, whether you were Caribbean, whether you were African. What I wanted you to do is research your name. Where does it come from? Is it religious connection? Is it a cultural connection? Is it a tribal name? Or is it that your mum, just like my mum, liked Stevie Wonder and so decided to call me Aisha? But all of these things connect with who you are. And we did a whole program when we did what's in clothing, we did what's in music, we did what's in art, we did what's in a word. And what this allowed us to do is talk about the African diaspora and we were able to then look at, look at diaspora and say to ourselves, okay, let's give them a, a seed of knowledge. Let's give them some information that allows them to connect with Africa. But at the same time, we're going to create connection with who we are and how it relates. We even had Chinese children saying, oh, miss, I'm going to teach you how to pronounce my proper name. Because a lot of the kids will change their name to a British name to make it easier for the tongue. So they might say, oh, my name is Sally, but that's not their name. And so even you know, having a session where we were learning how to curl our tongue to pronounce different names for the first time got kids who've been with us two or three years and never heard their name spoken in school their birth name because they gave a name that was easy to be used yes of course thank you so much Aisha so that was Aisha Tomas a mother educator teacher assistant principal and founder of representation matters here in Bristol and a great interview thanks for that it's now time Melissa for our weekly roundup yes and one good news is that Bristol is among the 67 areas in the UK that are about to get a new faster tasting regime. So apparently this new test uh, uses similar technology to pregnancy tests. So this means that the result will be shown and known in under an hour. And they could see as many as one in 10 people tasted each week. And that's coming up very soon. So that's on top of the many good news of the week. That, I think, will really help people be able to assess the risk of doing certain things, won't it? Absolutely. We need to test people and then we'll 
can start managing this crisis finally. Yes, staying in Bristol, I want to tell you about my grateful. My grateful is a charity which helps asylum seekers, refugees and migrants to share their culinary skills. And they're putting up a lot of festive cookery classes. The chefs are all migrants. And in addition to workshops which teach you how to cook the particular recipe, you also get to hear their life story. And this has only gone online, Melissa, because of the pandemic. So it costs around £22 and you can find them by searching for My Grateful Cookery Classes. The chefs come from places like Lebanon, Syria, Pakistan, Albania, Sri Lanka, Jamaica. And when I looked at the site, some of the classes are sold out. But the three that took my fancy are a Gambian recipe, lamb and peanut butter sauce and fried plantain. That's Sarah's. Yusuf, who's from Syria, is cooking fried aubergines and fatouche, which is Syrian salad. And Kashi, who's from Tanzania, she's going to be cooking street food style dishes. So urojo soup, baja, spiced chutney and cassava chips. So which one do you fancy? Oh my God, it's hard to choose. I've been to Tanzania and the food there is gorgeous, usually a bit of coconut taste. But I think I'll go for the Syrian one because that's the best food in the world, isn't it? I'll do it and I'll taste it in a Zoom session with you. Yeah, you do it first because people might not know, but I'm not really the best cook in the world. Another excellent initiative that we can all use in the UK uh, from now on is a bookshop that is online. And it's a new ethical uh, website-only way to buy books. And that means an alternative to other websites that are already billionaires and we don't want to mention. Um, it's been set up to boot sales um, at independence retailers. The, the link is bookshop.org. And, Pommy, they managed to sell over £400,000 um, of books just the opening week. So it meant that so many people went to support them. If you go on the site, you can search for your favourite local bookshop and buy anything you need from them or there find a second best option via an independent shop. And then the shop will get 30% of the cover price, which means that instead of like killing the business, you also uh, support them and the website allow you not to get, you know, delay because of the logistics or packaging or whatever. There are more than 150 sellers across the UK already signed up on the site and there will be more, it's very likely. But you can also, of course, purchase a book um, without any specific bookshop. And in that case, 10% will go to a special pot, central pot, to be distributed among all the, the bookshops that are affiliated. It shows how many people want to support independent, local and important businesses in their own communities. And that I found really uplifting. It's such a good idea, isn't it? I didn't, I didn't realise that it... it it links to specific local bookshops, community bookshops, independent bookshops, but also you can get books which are just sold online. That's great. Yeah, I was waiting for something like this. I, I kept ranting, why can't we compete with bigger, you know, website by having local initiatives or at least national initiatives? And there is my dream come true. Fabulous. Well, moving to the other side of the world now, Melissa, we're going to Japan. We all know that Joe Biden won the race to become the next president of the United States. But who knew that there was another Joe Biden in Japan who's become a social media sensation? 
His name is actually Utica Umeda, and he's the 73-year-old mayor of the small town Yamato. But it was noticed that the kanji characters used to write his name can also be pronounced Joe Biden. He said when interviewed, I feel really close to him. <laughs> he was a bit perplexed about it all. Uh, and according to the Kyoto News Agency, he said, it feels as though I've also won the election. <laughs> I said good on him. <laughs> he said he hopes his association with the US president-elect would bring his town with a population of about 15,000, the same recognition that the Japanese fishing town of Obama enjoyed when its namesake became a presidential candidate. And this, Joe Biden says, although there's a huge difference between the job of the US president and mine, as the mayor of Yamato, our passion is the same. That's an incredible story. I remember Obama in Japan supporting Obama. Um, but here is Joe Biden. Like Japan's always been ahead, isn't it? It's one of the biggest news of the week, I guess. A lot of people can relate, and probably all the listeners of the quarantini, that uh, it's a big relief that this election is over and there's no terribly bad news. And finally, Pommy, I just wanted to mention, obviously you can't have missed the news that um, there is a potential vaccine now for COVID-19 that has been um, proven to be working at 90%. Um, and in my hometown, people have been celebrating with graffiti. There's actually a mural representing a doctor holding a needle with the vaccine in her hand and a shiny mask ready to help people around that has appeared this week in Paris. It's uh, Boulevard Vincent Auriol in the 13e, I mean 13th arrondissement or district. And it's a hotspot for graffiti over there and graffiti artists. It's also very close to one of the largest hospitals in the French capital, La Pitié Salpêtrière. So that's always nice. It's a very interesting visual that you could might come across online. Fantastique, <laughs> if that's a word. It is. And any of you who can really speak French can listen to our bonus French episode, which is coming up near the end of the year. So watch out for that. We're very excited. The entire episode is going to be in French. Melissa is going to write me a very, very clear script. Yes, with both of us speaking in French, which is, the, which is <laughs> exciting, isn't it? It is. À bientôt. <laughs> and to finish off for me what do we have for this episode something quite exciting oh well <laughs> if you haven't heard of Aldous Harding then it's time you listened to her music or watched it actually as well because she's the most incredible performer and she wears extraordinary costumes and hats when she's performing so look at her on, on YouTube or listen to her on your favourite music channel She's in Bristol as we speak, finishing off her fourth album, and she stayed with me for a little while. When she first came over from New Zealand, she had to spend two weeks away from everybody who was going to be recording the album, and they all had to do the same, and then they met together in the recording studio and recorded the album together. So I've chosen one from her album designer called Fixture Picture.
was the very wonderful and lovely Aldous Harding singing Fixture Picture. Aldous Harding, who was um, recording in Bristol and stayed with you, Pommy, that's an incredible story and we kind of want to know more. So I hope we'll get back to this in the next episode um, in the coming weeks. Yes. This podcast episode was hosted by me, Melissa Shimam. And was hosted and produced by me, Pommy Harmer. Thank you for listening. And stay safe.